0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This
2: is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Very
3: good afternoon to you. Hope you're well and very happy you can spend some time here this afternoon. Shortly on the country, our berry growers right across the country are getting together for the first time to launch a national marketing campaign. So all the blueberry, blackberry, strawberry, raspberry growers getting together and marketing their fruit to you. We'll learn more about that shortly. Also today, in the last three or four years or so, farm insurance costs have risen quite substantially, so much so that some farmers might be weighing up the risk of cutting back on some insurance.
4: Well, insurance bills have been rising probably for the last three or four years. Just looking at ours quickly this morning, um, you know, we've more than doubled since sort of pre-COVID levels. So, you know, the increases have been very significant. Households are, you know, trimming costs where they can. Um, I think that sort of applies to, you know, farm businesses and, um, and insurance.
3: Have you decided enough is enough regarding the cost of some insurance and have you chosen not to insure something that in previous years had always been insured let me know the text is 0448 6 past 12 here on the country hour on the ABCWA streaming live on the web and on the ABC listen app The Federal Agriculture Department has rejected an application to re-export the livestock on board the MV Bahesia around Africa to the market in Israel. Last month, the regulator ordered the vessel to return to Australia due to security concerns in the Red Sea region. The regulator is refusing all requests to be interviewed, although the Department Secretary, Adam Fennessy, did hold a media conference yesterday to explain the export assessment process.
5: Applications to export live animals undergo complex assessments that balance Australia's biosecurity, export legislation, animal welfare considerations and the requirements of our international trading partners. The livestock on the vessel continue to be in good health and they remain under veterinary care and supervision there is no suspicion of exotic pests or diseases within the livestock. The next steps for the livestock on board the vessel are commercial decisions for the exporter to make. A range of options remain available to the exporter and the Department stands ready to assess any future future application submitted by the exporter. Now that the regulatory decision has been made, my department supports a resolution to this matter as quickly as possible and stands ready to respond to any further requests from the commercial exporter.
3: Secretary of the Federal Department of Agriculture, Adam Fennessy. Jeff Pearson is the Livestock President with the lobby group WA Farmers. He says the application to re-export the livestock has been rejected due to legal action by an animal activist group in Israel.
6: Apparently, the Israel, an Israeli activist uh, organisation has put an injunction um, into the uh, Israeli government to not allow the animals or not allow the government to uh, list a, a, an importing permit to uh, import those uh, cattle into Israel.
7: What do you know about this group in Israel?
8: Uh, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure um, where they, how they exist, or where they exist. I've heard of them uh, in the past, and they're, they're quite a strong organisation. Uh, I, I would almost um, guarantee there's connections to the Australian uh, activism uh, group, or one of them. So I, I can't pinpoint any of the, any of the names, or. or uh, the organisations at all. So, but yeah, just just know that they exist and they're quite strong.
3: Jeff Pearson, WA Farmers Livestock President, speaking to Lucinda Jose. President of the WA Farmers, John Hassell says the regulator's decision-making process has been completely inadequate.
8: Paralysis by indecision. It's just a, a, an appalling situation uh, where the goalposts have been shifted in a fairly massive way. There was a contingency plan in place. If that was allowed to go, then the animals probably would be very close to being unloaded by now, uh, you know, even though they'd gone around the caves. So I think this decision by the by the federal department to turn it back was was one thing. But then, that taking nine days to make a decision about, well, it's taken actually more than that. It's been nearly twenty one days to make a decision about not not allowing it to sail again is is pretty appalling. They should have got it back here, resupplied, and got it on its merry way or got it on them unloaded straight away. So. Uh, You know, the Federal Department's not taking any responsibility for the financial uh, implications of this uh, or or the biosecurity risks. They're just saying that's all on the exporter. Well, I think as soon as they turn that vessel towards Perth rather than sending it around the Cape, the Federal Department should be taking responsibility for it and compensating the exporter.
7: Is it fair enough, though, for the Department to say, look, it's up to the exporters now to try and find a resolution here obviously with with the approval of the department the The ball is very much in the exporters court
8: well I, I actually think it's 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 fair enough we've got to find the right outcome for the animals make no mistake about that um but for the department to wash its hands of any responsibility for the very 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 poor decision-making process that's happened i think uh, is not on and i think that uh, we'll be supporting the exporter as much as we can in trying to get a resolution on that because I think uh, there's either there's been three things that have happened. It's either Murray Watts got involved, which I prefer to think that he hasn't been that stupid, or there's someone in the department who has a personal bent against the live trade and wanted to create havoc as much as they could, or it's plain stupidity and paralysis by God knows what reason, but just complete paralysis of decision making until it got to the point where they just couldn't do anything but say unload them. Uh, so my guess is it's probably the latter.
7: Or, or could it be a concern about the welfare of those animals as well?
8: Well, if they were really concerned about the animal welfare, they would have got them unloaded as quickly as possible, and that would have been taking them to their market.
7: And so, why wouldn't they do that? Well,
8: you know, I, I mean, I don't we're really trying to know, get but... answers
7: here. We, we're finding it yeah, frustrating yeah, well,
8: as you well. Know, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm, a, I'm just a, just a cocky. You know, I I'm, I'm befuddled by all this, and just and and, and as you said, I'm angered by it because I think the complete inability to make a decision. So the, the animals were actually back here. We had a, a meeting with the federal department and I said, what's your preferred course of action? And they said they didn't know. It took another three days. So the animals were back here for four days before they said our preferred course of action is to actually resupply the vessel and send it on its merry way. And now look what they've done, even after having said their preferred course of action is so-and-so. So and so so they made this decision now. This final decision has been made Based on a legal action of an animal and white, animal rights group in Israel against their government importing food for their people. I mean, what? Why are we pandering to animal rights groups in in Israel? You know, for food supply for their nation. I just find it absolutely bizarre.
7: But again, it could also be pandering to the the welfare of the animals. Again, that surely that is a concern.
8: Make no mistake, we all want the animals. To, you know, even for me, who thinks it's a very comfortable feedlot on the ocean, you know, with full ventilation. I, I think, you know, it's unacceptable to leave them on there too long. So the reality is they couldn't make a decision until it got to the point where they just had to say, we've got to unload them. You know, the, the decision should have been made weeks ago. Because they
7: knew not, it was coming. They had plenty of time, didn't absolutely, they? Absolutely. Yeah. Just absolutely
3: paralysed with fear, in my opinion. President of WA Farmers, John Hassel, speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. 13 past 12 here on the Country Do you agree with John Hassel? He's sort of summing up uh, the regulator's decision-making process as paralysis by indecision. Do you agree with that? Or who's responsible here? Is it the regulator? Is it the exporter? A little bit of both. And John also making the point that the regulator should take on some of the financial responsibility of this because it was the regulator who made the call for the ship to turn around and return to Australia. Let me know what you think on the text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. This on the text. This is a cruel political stunt to bring another livestock export incident into the public eye. Sponsored by animal activists. Just saying. 0448 922604 if you would like to text through and have your say this afternoon, 14 past 12. Australia's Chief Veterinary Officer Beth Cookson says since this voyage began on the MV Bohesia, only a small number of livestock have died.
7: The um, total number of uh, animals that have died do, does remain below the uh, reportable mortality level, as I have mentioned. Uh, this is 1% for sheep and 0.5% for cattle. Um, I can confirm that um, on board um, the vessel there have been uh, 51 deaths associated in the sheep, um, and four in the cattle population. Uh, this, as I mentioned, um, is quite a low number considering the number of animals on board um, and within normal uh, ranges uh, and um, the deaths have been associated with conditions that wouldn't necessarily be unexpected in livestock production systems um, and um, farming practices. The, um, the, um, we, we continue to have no... Um, concern that there's exotic pestle diseases present in the population. Australia's Chief Vet, Beth Cookson.
3: Ben Cave is the CEO of the RSPCA here in Western Australia. He agrees with industry on this point. The decision-making process over the future of this shipment is taking too long.
6: Ourselves and WA farmers often disagree about a lot, but I think what we do agree on here is this decision has taken an agonisingly long time. And and animals are suffering on that ship whilst that is happening.
7: Well, how would you describe the handling of this?
6: Look, I I think it's another crisis in an industry that has a a history of crisis. I think, you know, it's disappointing to think that whatever it is, 19, 20 days later, we're getting a decision on what to do with those animals. In fact, still no decision. All we've got is a rejection for the re-export application. The animals remain in limbo. And it's taken almost three weeks to get to that point. So that is incredibly disappointing.
7: So what should happen?
6: Oh, well, the core view is that those animals need to come off the ship here in Australia and be dealt with humanely here in Australia as quickly as possible. They've been on that ship for over a month now. They are starting to die. I think you, you reported earlier 50-plus um, deaths now of sheep on board. Um, they, they need to be dealt with as quickly as possible.
7: How do you think this situation will impact a WA's exit from the live sheep trade. Do you think it could bring that forward?
6: Look, I think I think it, this will galvanise a lot of the community that this is just the latest crisis in a long list of crises that have plagued the industry, and I, I think it will galvanise community support for the industry being phased out in a in a professional way that compensates uh, and allows farmers to transition out without them bearing the expense of an overnight end to this industry.
7: Um, what about the Jarwin, Ben? That's got about 60,000 sheep on board. Uh, do you hold similar fears for those animals because they're going to be making the same journey, although their destination is not Israel, it's Jordan. So that does present a, a, a different scenario, if you like.
6: I think it does present a a different scenario. And just like John, I don't want to get involved in the politics of the region. Um, What I do know is a lot of countries and a lot of shipping um, enterprises are not shipping through the Red Sea. And so we're concerned for for any vessel going through the Red Sea, especially with that amount of animals and the human crew on board.
7: Uh, Finally, Ben Cave, John Hassel said you're an animal extremist. How do you uh, respond to that
6: Yeah, look, I think John will always try and give RSPCA that tag. Um, We're not extremists. We're we're welfarists. We're a little different to other groups out there. We're certainly not anti-farming. Our our structure is based on animals should have a good life and a humane death. If if you consider that being extremist, then I think you probably need to, to reconsider the view of what an extremist is.
3: Ben Cave, the CEO of the RSPCA in WA, speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. 18 past 12. The Premier, Roger Cook, says with more livestock set to disembark the MV Bahesia, biosecurity and animal welfare remain the top priorities.
5: Those animals, as they've taken off the vessel, will have to be uh, quarantined in um, in specific facilities or farming properties which are licensed for quarantining to make sure that there's no biosecurity risk. We will then look at what the options are beyond that in terms of proce- further processing those animals. Are you disappointed about how long this has taken to get to this point? I understand these are complex issues. The Commonwealth are keen to be able to... Uh, Provide an export licence if that's possible. That doesn't now look like it's possible. So we now need to move forward and see what other solutions we can put in place.
3: Premier Roger Cook with Tim Wong C. Tony Seabrook is president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association. He says if the livestock are going to be processed here in WA, the challenge will be to find an abattoir that has the capacity and the availability to do the job.
9: The producers are having an appalling time trying to get their stock into the system. The wait times to get our animals into abattoirs. And look, we saw the, saw the closure of the one, the Shark Lake Abattoir and Esperance. We don't have the capacity here. If we process these sheep, someone else is gonna get bumped. Now, there's an abattoir that actually does process this type of animal and it's flown out to the Gulf. Uh, and at air freight is the way it needs to go. Our Federal Minister of Transport, Madeline King, she simply said, "We will not allow Qatar Airlines to bring the type of aeroplane into Australia that can actually carry out the trade." Well, let's sing off the same hymn shirt here, because you know, if if you want us to actually export stock, and it is is a an option that is there, uh, to say that they won't allow Qatar Airlines to bring the extra flights in with a cargo capacity to take them out. She's cutting directly across the the policy put in place by the federal minister. And my understanding is
7: all the processes, as you're saying, someone would have to get bumped because my understanding is they're all fully booked till about
9: April. Absolutely fully booked. And so if these stock come back into the local system, it will just mean that people like myself won't be able to get stock processed. And to be real about this, the sheep industry is in an appalling mess. And if you can get $50 or $60 a head for sheep today, you're doing pretty well. To get a mechanic on the farm today to work on a harvest or a tractor, a tradie, we're talking 100 $120, $30 an hour to get these people here. So we're hanging by a thread here and people need to recognise there's no fat in the system. What John Hassell said about farmers walking away, it's a very strong feeling out here in the bush that most people have had enough. And when we come under attack from a bunch of people that don't know what they're talking about, it just exacerbates the problem.
3: President of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, Tony Seabrook. And we have contacted a number of the meat works here in Western Australia. And the manager of a medium sized operation says they are fully booked at the moment. But in an emergency situation like this, they could actually process every single sheep on board the MV Bahesia in one week. They wouldn't need assistance from any other meat processing company. The only problem is their company would have to tell some of their other customers there would be a delay in processing their sheep. But this particular manager says he's not been approached by anyone to ask if they could process these sheep on board the livestock export vessel, the MV Bahesia. So I guess really at this stage, it looks certain that all the livestock will be taken off the MV Bahesia. But whether they'll be processed here or re-exported is yet to be determined. Let me know what you're thinking about the latest on this ongoing saga. On the text 0448 uh, Ben says, textbook media news cycle manipulation by the federal government to deflect the narrative. It might take a lot more than the live trade issue to save the elbow government says Ben. Michael says a cynic might think this debacle with these sheep and cattle is just a set-up to make the live export trade look bad to support the ban. And this from Terry in Esperance. Once the Federal Government Department made the decision to turn the ship back to port, it has by default become the creator of this mess. And what an absolute mess says Terry. Uh, your thoughts on the text this afternoon, 0448 23
0: past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
3: An update from the newsroom at half past 12 for you and then checking weather conditions right around Western Australia. First, though, huge increases in insurance premiums has some farmers thinking about taking their chances and leaving some machinery uninsured. Ryan Milgate farms in Victoria's Wimmera, and he's also the grains counsellor with the Victorian Farmers Federation. He says in the last three or four years, his insurance bills have gone through the roof.
4: Well, just looking at ours quickly this morning, um, you know we've more than doubled since sort of pre-COVID levels, so you know the increases have been very significant.
10: And is it twofold, Ryan, that the value of what you're insuring, particularly machinery, is increasing a lot, but then uh, aside from that, the the premiums themselves are increasing as well?
4: Yeah, well, that's personally what we've seen from our perspective. And so, look, I can't really comment from the the, the risk side of why those premiums have have gone up, but certainly in, in our situation that I think everyone knows the cost of everything's gone up and new machinery and and the value of the machinery that you have got. And if you do have to, you know, replace it, the cost of that is, you know, increased significantly as well. So we're sort of getting a double whammy here, which is not great.
10: Can you just give me a sense of what, what a typical farmer, I know it's hard to say typical farmer, but what a farmer's insurance bill may be when they're insuring, you know, a few sheds, a few million dollars worth of gear, Uh, maybe crop insurance on top of that, how much could they be paying out?
4: Yeah, well, look, if you leave the crop insurance out for a a second, I I think it wouldn't be hard to find plenty of operations with, you know, insurance bills in the north of 100,000 comfortably. Like, they're not, you know, not large corporate-style operations, just medium to large farmers, but, yeah, definitely lots, you know, 50 grand doesn't go very far at all anymore. Um, once you start insuring particularly you know harvesters and sprayers and tractors and stuff like that
10: and given how substantial that cost is are you hearing people scale back on their on their insurance and uh, cancel their insurance on items that they typically would have always insured
4: yeah look i have lots of conversations just here there and everywhere and people talk about self-insuring with lots of probably more the smaller stuff i mean it's um Yeah, it's incredibly risky to insure an expensive machine like a a harvester or something that you've got. Well, it's a requirement to have them financed. So, but yeah, certainly, um, you know, the smaller bits and pieces, the uh, older stuff that you normally would have had, you know, insured just in case is dropping off, and a lot of talk around crop insurance. Um, I mean, that's another. There'd be people paying out that figure I quoted earlier again, just crop insurance. I'm hearing a lot of guys you know, with um, fire and hail are looking at self-insurance or, or you know, depending on cash flow and um, equity and all that kind of stuff, there's, you know, people are making decisions to potentially take on greater risks than they, they may have been prepared to in the past.
10: And in terms of why premiums have gone up so much, I mean, we hear lines from the insurance companies, lines like uh, more... Uh, unpredictable weather and fire and flood etc but uh, do, do, do individuals feel like they're that perhaps if that's not an issue at their farm that they're paying for the risks uh, of others
4: 100 uh, percent. that's the sentiment that's going around is um look you don't want to see anyone suffer any losses anywhere but it's pretty hard to swallow that you know on the Wimbra Plains your insurance is going up because of a flood impact on a on a major city you know in northern australia it's kind of it is a bit of pill to swallow and get your head around
10: where to from here ryan because these the costs typically only go in one direction so a farmer's just going to have to keep tackling these these rising premiums
4: yeah well look um honestly i'm not really sure off the bat what the alternatives are you know, like I alluded to before, if you're expensive machinery and, 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 you know, where you're getting finance with the bank, you know, that's a requirement that does have to be insured. So um, I think we're always still going to be using insurance, but I think people are being more and more, um, you know, making sure that they haven't got things left on the list or they're yeah, really starting to self-assess the risks they take and, you know, what they are prepared to wear. And, um, you know, same as I guess households are you know trimming costs where they can um i think that sort of applies to you know farm businesses and um and insurance
10: okay so with these insurance premiums going up so much ryan i guess it's coming at a time where a lot of people have had a a string of good seasons and they're probably maybe reasonably well positioned to pay those increases but the premiums will still be there at those high levels when when we have bad years, which will undoubtedly happen. So will that be when costs like this become really problematic?
4: I think it will, Angus, yeah. I think, um, you know, much of the, well, the listening area here has had a fairly fortunate run, the vast majority. So while we say, you know, it is a hugely increased burden, uh, it's still a burden that's being handled. But, yeah, if we get, you know, you you drop interest rates and, and all these other costs on top, and um some stage there's a straw going to break the camel's back somewhere. As life goes on, we will see some dry years and leaner years, and that's when it will become really top of mind.
3: Ryan Milgate, he's a Wimmera farmer, and he's a Grains Councillor with the Victorian Farmers Federation. He was speaking to Angus Furley. 29 past 12. Let's get the very latest from the newsroom with Jonathan Beale.
0: Thanks, Belinda. The Reserve Bank has kept official interest rates on hold at a 12-year high of 4.35%. At its first meeting of the year, the decision is in line with economists' expectations. Inflation in the December quarter was lower than forecast and annual inflation has slowed to 4.1%. The RBA says while inflation is easing, it will be some time before it returns to its target band of 2 to 3%. More Australians will receive a bigger tax cut than originally proposed. Now the Federal Opposition has backed the Government's revised Stage 3 tax cuts. The benefits will come into effect in July and benefit 84% of workers. The Coalition has indicated it will try to make some changes to the legislation when it's debated in Parliament. And WA scientists say the world may have already warmed one and a half degrees... Breaching a key climate guardrail, the international community had agreed to work to prevent. The 2015 Paris Agreement sought to limit warming to one and a half degrees and avert the catastrophes like disappearing ice caps and extreme weather. But research published today in the journal Nature Climate Change suggests that limit may have been breached more than a decade ago. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock.
3: Thank you so much for that, Jonathan. 29 to 1. Today, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimaya Station and this is the Country
9: Hour on the ABC.
3: Great to have you along this afternoon, heading off to Mueche just before one for the results of today's sheep market. And we've been speaking quite a lot about sheep and a few cattle too and the future of those on board the MV Bahesia still sitting there at the port of Fremantle after last night's decision by the regulator to reject that application to re-export those still on board to the... Um, Middle East to the market in Israel. In response to that, this on the text, a decade ago I worked at the Maritime Museum in Fremantle and watched the sheep ships come and go. I was probably aligned with the live export protesters on Fremantle Bridge. Today I have hung up my corporate hat and become a Merino sheep farmer. I give my full support to the live sheep industry and take my hat off to the incredible staff overseeing the welfare of the animals on Australian ships. The problem will now lie on our own shores as the current lack of processing facilities will put more pressure on sheep farmers already carrying too many sheep from the disruption to last year's trade. Many sheep farmers are selling out of the industry. No trade, no sheep, no wool, no lamb. More chemicals equals less sustainable farming models. And this from Lincoln... Decision paralysis hits the nail on the head. I dread the day another country wants to invade Australia. The only decision the Labor government would make to be greet them with a welcome to country. 0448 922 604. Text through, let me know what you're thinking. 27 to 1. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. And let's start in the South West Land Division because I'm kind of dreading what lies ahead over the next week or so. So let's start this afternoon and see where we're heading.
11: Good afternoon, Belinda. I don't think you're the only one. We're all dreading this week. It's going to be a very toasty week. Um, so we've seen a, a few heatwaves already at uh, uh, Since the beginning of this year, two, in fact, and this is going to be worse than the other two, it's going to be a fairly prolonged heatwave event. So we're starting to see temperatures already warm up today. It's going going to continue building up until probably till the end of the weekend. So, a very prolonged event. We'll see multiple days where we'll see temperatures above 40 um, across uh, a lot of locations across the Southwest Land Division. It's also very dry. So, it's not just the heat building, but those very dry conditions are going to fan um, uh, elevated fire dangers as well. So starting from uh, tomorrow, we'll see a low to severe intensity heat wave built across the western parts of the southwest land division and we'll see some very hot temperatures. So multiple days where we'll see temperatures in the high 30s to low 40s and it's just not the uh, daytime temperatures but the overnight minimums are going to hover in the low to, to mid 20s across multiple locations through the southwest land division. What what this means is um, the body won't be able to cool uh, down overnight so because of the consecutive very hot days so um, it's most likely going to start easing the heat that is um, by uh, from Sunday or Monday at this stage but there's a fair amount of uncertainty uh, what this West Coast draft does so the reason why we're seeing this this prolonged heat wave event building up again is um, we've got a static weather pattern. So we have got a West Coast trough that's going to become slow moving and we've got a firm ridge of high pressure that's not budging at all this week. So unless we see that pattern changing, unfortunately we'll continue to see that heat continue to build over the next few days. The silver lining, I suppose I can say with this uh, heatwave event is it's it's a dry event in the sense we're not going to see dry lightning. Uh, it's, it's a fairly stable pattern, so there is n- not enough instability in, in the atmosphere to cause thunderstorms. So cloudless skies, which means sunny, long, sunny days and very warm nights will um, keep those elevated fire, uh, fire dangers going. But um, the elevated fire dangers will be a bit reduced in the sense um, the, oh, I should say the bushfire risk will be a bit reduced because we're not seeing dry lightning in the la- landscape with this event.
3: All right, let's have a look at northern and eastern parts. Uh, are they sort of heading for similar sort of heat wave conditions?
11: Yes, Gascoigne and the western parts of Pilbara is. So the hottest places over the next few days will be southwest Pilbara, the western parts of the Gascoigne and central west. Um, Although um, uh, temperatures elsewhere will be warm to hot as well, but not as hot as the locations I've mentioned. The only places that are likely to see thunderstorms uh, this week uh, will be um, the northern parts of the Kimberley and central parts um, and also uh, the inland parts of the... The Pilbara, although the thunderstorms are expected to be fairly dry through the Pilbara, a little bit more rainfall across uh, parts of the Kimberley. It has been very dry across the Dampier Peninsula and the southwest Kimberley uh, since since November. We've barely seen twenty millimeters of rain across Broome and surrounding areas in the last few months. So. these areas might see one or two thunderstorms over the next few days, but these are the only places that will see uh, some thunderstorm activity and clouds. So that will help keep the daytime temperatures a little bit lower. But because it's moist heat, it will still feel quite uncomfortable.
3: And then the warnings this afternoon, Ange.
11: Currently, we have got a heatwave warning for the gas coin. However, the next warning, a heatwave warning that will come out will include a few other places. So this will include central west, lower west, and also the southwest for tomorrow. Um, having said that, uh, there is low-intensity heatwave that's gripping the central parts of the state as well. So the Pilbara, the interior, and the southwest west of the Kimberley as well. So not in warning, but there's suddenly low-intensity heat wave through these areas as well. Um, we'll also see uh, there's no fire weather warnings at the moment, uh, but we're likely to see fire weather win- warnings later in the week for the west, for areas closer to the west coast of the southwest land division. And currently we have got strong in warning uh, through the Gasquan and Charlton coastal waters.
3: Ange, thanks so much for going through all of that. 22 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio taking a look at the rainfall figures.
12: Yeah, and there's hardly anything. So in the Kimberley where we normally have the most rain at this time of the year, there's hardly been anything in the last 24 hours. Uh, Mount Amherst topped it with 8 mils. Uh, Warman was the next best with 3. And then in the Pilbara, a little bit of a downpour at De Grey Station with 4 mils and that was it and then nothing else in the northern and eastern forecast districts and in the southwest land division forecast districts. I think the top was just one mil at Bremer Bay. But there's certainly been a fair bit of rain around in the NT and northwest Queensland coming from that ex-tropical cyclone and lots of big downpours and some flooding as well still. But some parts of northern WA have certainly had a really different start to the wet season. Roebuck Plains Station is in the West Kimberley, so it's about 30 kilometres from Broome. Manager John Geddes recorded less than five mils of rain for all of January.
13: For February, um, it's really dry. Pretty much no grass growth whatsoever. So uh, we've had a couple of smaller storms to the east, eastern end of the property on about 100 kilometres away from the floodplain. Uh, the country out there's got a little bit of growth, but uh, on 70% of the property, uh, it's looking very ordinary.
14: And so what's your plan from here? You're obviously holding plenty of cattle, I'm imagining, off the back of what was a, a pretty rough season for cattle prices last year.
13: Yeah, we were lucky enough. We are lucky we, we actually were able to sell quite a few cattle towards the end of last year and you know got pretty good money for them so uh, our sale cattle still look pretty good we've been looking after those and kind of meeting with our agents this morning to to work out a plan we're probably going to unload some of those sooner rather than later uh, they'll still weigh pretty well we've been shifting cattle uh, we're lucky enough we had spare paddocks paddock spelling actually to you know, would have been in the equation for this year's program. We've had to bring those back into production early and shift cattle into those paddocks, which is going to leave us in a bit of a spot for the rest of the year. But we're just taking it a day, week at a time at the moment. Main focus is looking after the cattle.
14: And when you say you're looking to offload some of those cattle a bit earlier, does that mean pushing forward your first round muster?
13: If we don't get rain by the end of February, we'll start mustering and weaning.
14: When we're looking at the price of domestic cattle going up, is that a bit of a reassurance? Have you got the option of sending them into the domestic market?
13: Yeah, we definitely do plan to... uh, I've got a a meeting this morning, actually, with our agent uh, to discuss those matters, but uh, that's definitely an, an option for us. All cards are on the table at the
14: moment. And I guess on the flip side of things, when you're looking towards the export options, and I'm sure that you and your agent will be discussing this this morning, but we've heard late last week that there have still been no import permits issued from the Indonesian government for Australian cattle to go over there yet. Is that something that is concerning you at this stage?
13: Uh, yeah, for sure. It's, uh, yeah, that's, that is concerning. Uh, all we can do on our end, on an operational level, is make sure the cattle are, are fit and healthy and, and have uh, uh, plenty of weight on them and so we're ready to pull the trigger when when the permits are issued.
14: And are they fit and healthy at the moment? Have you been having to do extra things to keep them that way?
13: Yes, um, we've been been feeding silage to some cows. So, they, like I said, the sale cattle are really good. They, they've actually benefited from the probably from uh, milder season with no rain because we've had we've still got, you know got really good paddocks with them in it. But they're rapidly working through the feed base. Uh, uh, our sale cattle, our main mob of sale cattle are looking really, really good at the moment.
14: And this is, of course, after the the wet season following what was a, a very tough wet season for you with the 2022 flooding. Has your country been able to recover?
13: Uh, we had a big wet, obviously, last wet season. Uh, we did have that. That was a long, late wet. Some of the country benefited really well from that, but... The result of that is we had a lot of bushfires early in the dry season, and we've pretty much been addressing that right through till up until Sunday last week. Uh, we've managed to contain, but floodplain side of things, uh, some, of, some of it was underwater for a little bit too long and didn't really recover very well.
3: Manager of Roebuck Plain Station, John Geddes, speaking to Alice Marshall. 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And as workforce shortages continue to trouble Australia's horticulture sector, farmers are looking further afield for pickers, including Timor-Leste. Around 7,500 people from Timor-Leste were employed on Australian farms last year. Melissa Denning is one of the people involved in some of those recruitment programs trying to find the most suitable workers for Australia's fruit farms.
15: So we've recognised that our Timorese workers are a little bit on the shorter side, the smaller side, um, but they have very good speed. So we're actually looking uh, for roles where they could be successful in that. So in order to do that, we had to narrow down from the 15,000 in the work ready pool Basically the fastest for us. So we designed tests that actually showed us the speed of the workers, a hand-eye coordination test. One of the very first tests that I did, I called ping-pong test. I spray-painted 24 red ping-pong balls and 60 green ping-pong balls, and I mixed them together in a box. And they had to pull out the red ping-pong balls, resembling strawberries, and put them in an egg carton. And we had to see how fast they could do it, but also we were testing their colour blindness because obviously they needed to recognise the difference between the red and the green. And that way we were able to, not so much eliminate people, but in order to get the best workers who would be successful and earn the most money when they came to Australia. Is height a problem or a challenge? Height can be for us. Our tabletops generally sit at around... Around 150 centimetres, so we need people that are slightly taller than that. So we generally try and recruit people that are about 155 centimetres tall. An average Timorese lady is around 142 centimetres. Because we have uh, acknowledged that our Timorese workers are, are wonderful for us, we've actually decided to lower some of our tables so that they can actually be more productive and can actually then obviously do the work faster. For our raspberries and our canes, they actually sit at around 2 metres, 2 metres 20. So part of the testing I do is actually the height test to make sure that they can reach that high. But in other instances, we've also started to lower some of our canes so that our Timorese can actually do really well at picking our raspberries as well. Some other industries around the country that have also adjusted the way their um, orchards are set up to cater for the workforce. That's right. I've also heard of stories of the mango farms pruning their trees so that the fruit actually grows lower. Things along the lines of with the how they operate, the conveyor belts with the watermelons and the pumpkins, Um, you know, different sizing so that people find it easier. There are some cultural nuances within family units. How much does that play a role in how you work out if someone's suitable? A lot of what we have to do is also attitude Um, and that's kind of what we try and look for when we interview people in country and that's why we actually like to go to each country and talk to the workers. We want to make sure that they can succeed when they come here. Uh, we find a lot of our islanders and Timorese may never have cooked a meal before, haven't used a washing machine before. We have to teach them how to use a microwave. Things along those sorts of lines that we're happy to teach and we do, but we've also got to make sure that they've got that right attitude to be able to cope with being away from home. Uh, as in a specific example, the first-born son in Timor, basically becomes the head of the family if anything happens to the parents at home. Timor culture is that most people are buried within 48 hours. So if someone passes away, we have to get our workers home very, very quickly and sometimes it's just not possible. On on the flip side of that, they're the most responsible within their family because it's up to them to support the family back in Timor. So they want to be here to earn as much money so that they can support the rest of their family at home. Timor is very much a a less developed country. How is this benefiting its economy, pulling all these workers out of the country, which is a, a labour force for Timor? Uh, There's currently about 1.3 million people in Timor and officially there are 100,000 people employed. Um, They're very keen to expand uh, schemes like the Palm Scheme. I know they've just developed a program going to Japan. There's also about 3,000 or 4,000 workers that go to South Korea each year and they're about to start sending workers to uh, Brunei as well. We visit generally every year. Uh, We make the effort to go actually out to the districts. So we were there in September this year and we went out to the district Laotem. Temi sits right on the eastern tip of Timor. It's one of the furthest districts to get to. One of the workers built a house for his father. He was then in the process of building a second house behind that for himself and his family. He'd already built a house in another town. Another girl, Mafina, had built a house for her family and she'd um, bought an electric pump for their well. Uh, which was 14 foot deep, and they had a huge big vegetable garden out the back. So we've seen the houses built, we've seen the children educated. One of the, the oddities about Timor is they're allowed to go to university, but they can't graduate until they pay their bill at the end. So we've had three people go home in January to graduate. They've now got enough money to pay their university bill so they can now actually get that piece of paper to say that they've completed their studies. Look, we're fine if they don't come back. They've done their time, they've earned their money. You know, that's the whole idea of the program is they gain skills here in Australia and and benefits them, but then they take those benefits back to Timor and increase their own knowledge over there as well.
3: Melissa Denning from the Australian Pacific Labor Alliance speaking to Larissa Smith. 12 to 1, berry growers have united in an industry-first national marketing campaign to increase consumption of all four berries. The Berry Basket collaboration will be delivered by Hort Innovation and led by the industry's peak body, Berries Australia. Executive Director Rachel McKenzie says historically, blueberries, blackberries, strawberries and raspberries have all run their own marketing campaigns and she thinks it's time they work together.
16: This approach has been um, really positive overseas and there's a lot of evidence to say that a consumer who buys one berry is is likely to buy another berry. We're also really wanting to emphasise to the Australian consumer that you know at every time of year there is a great value, great tasting berry for you to try.
17: So consumers, are you suggesting we'll go out and buy all, you know, punnets of all the berries, all those different four berries at a time?
16: Certainly, um, there are a particular cohort of consumers who buy across the category, but often, as I said, they they have their um, moments of glory at different times of year. So um, we just want people to be buying berries every single time they go to the supermarket up upon a new trolley.
17: Yeah, so when will the campaign start and what will it entail?
16: So the campaign is starting right now and it's got a couple of facets to it. It has quite a strong social media and influencer component they're going to highlight the standout features of berries, including health benefits, so antioxidant richness and nutritional density, and a 30 second commercial to showcase the taste appeal on, um, on demand television. So we're going to have out of home, which is the, the banners that you see outside supermarkets. We're also going to have some advertising on the Coles and Woolworths online platforms, recognising that a lot of shoppers now buy their produce online.
17: So what are you hoping to achieve with this campaign? Is it about increasing value for for those industries?
16: Well, it's about increasing consumption, which therefore then increases value. So it's ensuring that all year round berry growers are being paid above the cost of production because sometimes it does dip below and that um, Australian consumers really appreciate these little nutritional powerhouses that they can eat every day.
17: And have you welcomed the inquiry by the ACCC into supermarket pricing?
16: Yes, it's absolutely important to have a look at the supply chain and make sure that every player in the supply chain is being treated fairly.
17: And do you believe that uh, berry growers are with their relationships with the major supermarkets?
16: I think it's important that we let the inquiry run so that we can understand what's actually happening because there's so many moving parts. I would hesitate to make a claim without getting all of the evidence, hence the need for an inquiry.
3: Rachel McKenzie, Executive Director of Berries Australia, speaking to Kim Honan. Nine to one, you will get all the latest on the yarding and prices at the Miche sheep market in a moment or two. First, though, have you ever yelled out, Rufus the ram has died? around the family dining table? If you have, you'd know the board game Squatter. Launched at the Royal Melbourne Show in 1962, the sheep farming game gave players an insight into the highs and the lows of earning a living on the land. And as Connor Burke explains, it's still one of the most successful Australian board games of all time.
2: It was over Christmas that I first spotted it. Stuck in an Airbnb on a rainy day on the Victorian coast, I found Squatter at the top of a dusty pile of old board games. The cover caught my eye. I didn't know what a Squatter was for a start, but this old worn copy featured a cowboy on horseback guiding a flock of sheep and piqued my interest. My London brain couldn't quite compute a board game about sheep farming, but when I started to investigate, I found out that this unique and niche piece of Australiana started as a side hustle, a way for a travelling salesman to get home to his family. But it turned into a love letter to the land, an educational tool and one of the most successful Australian board games of all time. Its inventor was Bob Lloyd, a city lad from Melbourne who gained a deep connection to rural life, working as a farmhand on his in-law's property in Locke, South Gippsland. Bob, who died in 2019, is remembered by his son Richard as a fun-loving bloke, a dreamer who loved the latest gadgets and toys.
18: Dad was um, fun-loving. There was a couple of things. I mentioned earlier that he used to spend a lot of time away from home when I was little. Every time that he came home, he brought us something. And on one occasion, uh, he brought back a toy, and when he wound it up, it had suction caps on it, and it walked up the wall and across the ceiling and down the other wall. And like We had fun with it, but I think Dad had more fun watching it do that than we did.
2: In 1956, Bob was on the road working, desperate to find a way to support his family and come home to them full-time. A man of faith, he prayed for inspiration. And driving through the Wimmera region in Western Victoria one day, he looked out the window and noticed the sheep grazing in the paddocks. And the thought suddenly came to him, Richard says.
18: And I was six years old when he actually came home with the idea for Squatter. Over the next few years, um, I can remember Dad preparing the prototype. I can remember him sitting there with a gem razor blade and a, uh, a, a ruler, a wooden ruler and uh, on, the, on the squatter board, the, uh, each property is divided up into paddocks and on his prototype, he'd cut out strips of cardboard that were possibly about one millimetre wide and he glued those down onto his prototype board. That was the meticulous manner in which he sort of put together the board. That was done over a two-year period. So 1956, he came up with the idea, sat down, wrote out the whole concept of the game in one night. He built the prototype and tested it, that, and he tested it with us. I was probably about uh, seven or eight by the time I was playing the game full on, um, and we played that prototype amongst our
2: family. Squatter is essentially a game about the highs and lows of earning a living as a farmer and is still in production six decades after it was launched. And while the board game industry is booming with more choice than ever, Squatter has stood the test of time, having sold more than 700,000 copies since it was first published in 1962. University of Melbourne board game researcher Melissa Rogerson says Squatter's popularity remains strong at a time when thousands of games come out a year.
16: So... For a long time, we could easily say it was the most successful Australian board game. And what really stands out about it is its longevity, right? That it, it was published in uh, 1962, I think. Board games do extremely well. There are thousands of new board games published every year. So it's very easy to think in that in that sea of new board game.
2: Each player starts with a sheep station made up of five natural pasture paddocks. The first player to irrigate all their paddocks and to be fully stocked with sheep wins. Bob wanted the game to be fun, but also an educational tool for farmers on the latest in agricultural practice. National Wool Museum director Padraic Fisher says perhaps squatters' biggest impact is to give the wider community an insight into farming. But the game is also an important cultural artefact.
18: You know, 20 years ago, if you had surveyed Australians, the preponderance of them, you know, more than 75% would have had some kind of direct association with something agricultural. But today, I would think that that statistic is flipped. But it also holds on to parts of Australian culture that may have disappeared or may be thinning a little bit. You know, it references language like Australian vernacular and Aussieisms, like like um, Tucker Bag, you know, so it keeps those kinds of uniquely Australian, you know, Australiana alive.
2: But really, Scotter became Bob's ode to Australian farming and those long days on his in-law's property.
18: He said one of the things he enjoyed the most, he had a horse, he was given a horse, he'd never ridden a horse before he got onto that farm, but his, one of his daily jobs was to ride the boundary of a 300-acre property and to check on the livestock. And um, he said he, he enjoyed that time more than anything else and he
3: really loved the rural community. Richard Lloyd. He is the son of squatter board game inventor Bob Lloyd and he was speaking to Connor Burke. Almost 11,000 sheep and lambs sold at the Michais sale yards this morning, so a slightly bigger yarding than last week. Terry Birkin, can you run through the details?
1: Hi Belinda. There was around 1,000 more sheep from last week's sale, however within that total aged sheep numbers were lighter with lamb supplies almost doubling. Quality in lambs overall declined with only a few pens in each agent with finished waste before slipping away quickly to lighter lambs lacking cover. Crossing was reflected in the increase of numbers and lack of condition, with all lamb categories selling to cheaper trends, while those sheep held firm. Most regular processor and feeder buyers were in attendance, however, restockers were more subdued. Crossbreed store lambs were back $8 to $10, selling from $20 to $72, while merino lambs eased $15 to $20, ranging from $15 to $60 a head. Light lambs were down $10 to $15, selling from $40 to $90 a head. Trade and heavy lambs these by $20, with trade lambs returning $60 to $120, and heavy lambs topping at $140 a head. Heavy merino weather hoggets were making $28 to $58, while the best merino ewe hoggets reached $55 a head. Most crossbred and Dorper hoggets with weight sold from $37 to $50, with one pen of Dorpers making $91, while younger Dorper rams were selling from $70 to $110. However, these were all small lots with restockers competing on them for breeding. A sheep remain firm with boner ewes making $5 to $19, medium ewes $15 to $35 and heavy ewes selling to a top of $45 while slaughter rams return $10 to $35 ahead. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service.
3: Thank you so much, Terry. On the livestock on board, the MV Bahesia. This from TG in Corrigan. These Muppets in government haven't got a bloody clue, even less than the activists. No contingency plan. Talk about Nero fiddling while Rome burns. I think the damage to our industry is the final nail in the coffin for many. 10% minority dictating to 90% majority. Shame, shame, shame. I apologise to all who benefit from my little bit of meat and wool. I'm done. And this from Liam in Esperance why don't we rename the country hour to the poor, hard-done-by, whinging farmer's sook time?
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.